introduce a child to a paintbrush and prepared to be amazed. And he looked up at me with these cloudy eyes and a big smile on his face. And he said, I paint the darkness. The darkness is very beautiful. There are many colored lights in the darkness. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, hear how a talented young artist brings the tools of public art and a lot of enthusiasm to neighborhoods all over the world. We'll also explore a scenic boulevard you can stroll to experience the heart of Berlin. For centuries, really, it was a place to see and to be seen, to be going around on a Sunday, put out your Sunday best. While in London, the River Thames has defined the city for centuries. Lara Maitland surveys the city from its riverfront and sometimes from underneath. It's brought the world in, it's made London a very cosmopolitan place, and it's taken London out and exported London to the world. Come along for great adventures in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I really admire my niece, Nicolina. She's been making public art for years in New York City. Now her infectious enthusiasm is getting all sorts of people to add color and a little heart into their neighborhoods. Coming up, Nicolina shares her passion for public art with us. And the London Mudlark is back to take us deeper into the stories she unearths from the muddy banks of the River Thames. I'm Rick Steves. Let's start today's travel with Rick Steves on one of the grandest streets in Berlin. It's a tree-lined boulevard called Unter den Linden and takes you through the historic heart of the city. It runs from the former palace of the Prussian kings to the Brandenburg Gate that serves as a symbol of Berlin. For a stroll to see the sights through the heart of Berlin, we're joined now by German tour guides Fabian Ruger and Holger Zimmer to tell us what this street represents to a Berliner. It's Well, it really is a historical axis, and it is a place where lots of things happened. Like it was just a little dirt road leading from the castle in the 15, 1600s to the Tiergarten, which was like the royal hunting ground. So it was just basically a little dirt road, nothing, nothing mm-hmm. big. But they decided, okay, let's let's kind of plaster it up. Let's doll it up. Let's plant trees uh, in the mid-1600s. And it really developed into a place where for centuries, really, it was a place to see and to be seen, to be going around on a Sunday, put out your Sunday best and really show off. And then, of course, not just the locals, but it was a place to show off your military might. Yeah, the Prussians used it for army displays, you know, for Big parades. Big parades. parades. Well, back then, yeah, they, they would parades. joke that. I, I think the joke was uh, most countries have an army, but in Prussia, the army has a country. Was the case in Berlin. Yeah, That's it was the a thing. Big Berlin was the capital of that. My hunch is when you have a palace, you've got the nobility and the big shots wanting to live nearby, and these could line this carriageway that evolves into a Grand Boulevard. Well, Grand Boulevard now and, and for a while, but like when it started, there's still issues like there, there was like geese and hen and pigs roaming about and the king was not happy. So he actually decreed orders that you have to put your house in order and not let your pigs run free. Uh, and now there's a big zoo just beyond the way. Right so there. maybe there you go. Hey, uh, Fabian, when we think of the name Unter den Linden, literally what is that? Under the linden trees, which are a tree that in the swampy area of Berlin would actually grow well with what's in the ground there. And for Berliners, the whole name conjures up images of taking a walk in the 1920s, as as Holger said, to see and to be seen. Mm. It's the place where you have to be. And of course, pretty much in the center, Unter den Linden crosses famous Friedrichstraße, which was where the nightlife boulevard of the 1920s was, where Marlene Dietrich started her career. So this is right. where you would... That, you know, and the, that's Friedrichstraße. That's Friedrichstraße running north-south. And, and of course, during the Cold War, it was, it was pretty deadly. But now Friedrichstraße is, is trying to resurrect itself. 
you know, the, the, the high point, the, the culmination of Unter den Linden these days or for, throughout history, I think has been this Brandenburg Gate. Fabian, can you explain the importance of the Brandenburg Gate and, and what it means to the, the people of Prussia and now Germany? The original meaning was to form an entrance gate into the city of Berlin. You would come through a long street as you approach the city of Berlin through a beautiful park, which has been lined with statues. It is owned by the royal family. And then you enter the city of Berlin itself through this gate. What a grand entryway. A wonderful boulevard will lead you straight towards the imperial palace at the end of the road. That was the idea. And the emperor himself, at first the Prussian king, later he's the Prussian emperor of Germany, would come with his horse coach out of the palace and ride through the gate itself. One of the two pillar columns was the gate reserved for the king and emperor himself. Oh, I didn't know that. So you got these grand entryways. It's like the front door of the city. And it was going to... Frederick the Great was the, the ultimate sort of Hohenzollern ruler. Didn't he have some vision to make the city like the, the new Athens or the new Rome or something like he, this? He also really changed the face of Unter der Linde Boulevard right. because he had this vision of the... A forum Fredericianum, like really like uh, go back to the old classical architecture and start an opera there. You know, I think that was like the mid 1700s when he said, I actually right after he stepped to the throne, he said, okay, I'm going to allocate money. Let's build it grand. Let's make, let's show the world that Berlin is not so just you've got behind the opera, Paris. You've got the, the opera university. There. University was a little later, but the opera was there. The uh, Catholic cathedral was to be there. The library was there. So like a lot of thinking, like show the world that we're not just an army, but also we can we can do a culture too. Because Prussia had a little bit of uh, ground to make up in that regard. Oh, yes, it was It was boot camp. Life was boot camp uh, for a little while. So they did bend over backwards to bring some culture. In fact, there's an entire island dedicated to museums. Museum Island, one, I think, the largest museum complex in Europe, um, housing about five world-class museums. And that was over a period of 100 years. But that's a little later, 1830, starting the Altus Museum up to the Neuss Museum 100 years later. And that is an amazing array of culture and art. And the collection, I think, especially when it comes to the Egyptian uh, and, mm. and Roman art, mm. is, is on a par to the British Museum, for example. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Berlin, specifically its main drag, its grand boulevard, Unter den Linden. And we're joined by Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger. And Fabian, we were talking about the Brandenburg Gate, and it's sort of like the Arc de Triomphe. People have an image of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris at the top of its Champs-Élysées, which I guess you could say is the Unter den Linden of Paris. And uh, <laughs> if you were standing on top of the Brandenburg Gate through the ages, you would have witnessed a lot of history. What are some of the big events through the ages that you'd see from the top of Brandenburg Gate? Oh, you would see, uh, for instance, the beginning of World War one with uh, the emperor riding through and thousands of Berliners actually hailing this as the beginning of what they feel is the beginning encirclement of Germany. Of course, the war ends very badly at the end of World War One. So 1914, this is Germans 19th July, all coming together August 1914. Even before that, what about the unification of Germany? Would that have been a, a big deal there? Oh, there was a parade in 1871 after the victory over France as Prussia becomes the leading kingdom and the Prussian king becomes emperor of Germany. So, Because Prussia really was spearheading German unification the way the, the Prussians and Bismarck organized it. And even before coming to you know German-French relations, uh, Napoleon was actually going through this gate and really saying, okay, like I take Berlin now. And then, of course, the Prussians got it, got it back uh, later on. Now, of course, the Brandenburg Gate was right there in no man's land on the wall. 
And a number of important events happened right there as sort of a symbol of where East meets West. What are some of the vivid images from Brandenburg Gate during the Cold War, during communism? Well, I think uh, at the later period, um, you know, we had Mr. Reagan coming up to it from the Western side and saying, listen, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down his wall. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. It was like the famous, famous words he used. And he did that with the backdrop of Brandenburg Gate. Absolutely, right yeah. there, like a few yards away on the Western side. And I actually remember very vividly, like just after the wall had come down in 1989 for sure, but the gate was still closed. So everyone was waiting, like waiting for every minute so the gate should be opened again, because that's a symbolical thing. And that was very like, you know, heartbeat. I still remember standing there and thinking like, okay, this could be the moment. And then when they open it, and that was the moment. And that was the moment a little later then. But euphoria swept across Berlin. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. Brandenburg Gate was no longer in no man's land, but it right became over time once again the center of the city. Yes. So we have the euphoria of the Brandenburg Gate, but there were dark times in the Brandenburg Gate. And I would imagine that the Nazis used it as a spectacle. Yeah. So Unter den Linden also is like where we remember the, the pictures of the, the troops, the SA troops, mm. uh, paramilitary troops marching through it with their torches you know, in the darkness or 1937 when, uh, you know, Mussolini was actually visiting the Duce to Berlin. And like you see the Linden all like lined with like statues with swastikas on top. A very, it's a very powerful image, but also very, very difficult to, to digest these days. That was, that was quite haunting there. The uh, Nazis had actually cut down all the Linden trees on the entire boulevard. Uh, because uh, the, wait a minute, it, so Unter den Linden, the Nazis had the nerve to cut down the linden trees that gave it its whole name. The excuse was to that they were building a subway right underneath, and so this, um, they had to basically dig a big trench, and uh, therefore they had an excuse to cut down the trees. And after the street was finished again, they of course simply put swastika banners on the left and right where the trees had been. Uh, and the trees that we see on Unter den Linden now are therefore not two, three hundred year old linden trees. They were all planted again by the communist government, in fact, after World War II. So the trees are back now. The trees are now back. Tour guides Holger Zimmer and Fabian Ruger are taking us along the main drag of Berlin, the grand boulevard known as Unter den Linden right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Holger offers tours of Berlin and works as a public radio arts producer there. Fabian was raised there and lives in New England now. During the pandemic, he's been perfecting an app to help travelers create efficient packing lists on the fly. Let's finish our conversation just with a favorite spot on Unter den Linden. Uh, as you walk, you can walk from Brandenburg Gate all the way to, well, it changes name, but to Alexanderplatz. And if you were going to take a, a little moment and just appreciate a spot... Holger, where would you stop? So today, I think I would just be right where the Lustgarten is, which is uh, the big green space where lots of people are just kind of now camping the Lustgarten, out. Like, so people the Lustgarten. know it's a beautiful uh, public green park with a fountain that in different ages has been a military marching ground or a place for people to hang out and, Parade and, place. and have a party and get a tan. And nowadays, it really is for people just to kind of like lie down on the grass and enjoy the time. But if you look right now, then you'll see a new building, which is completely something else, because that's the place where the old city castle had been before it was, you know, damaged in the war and then destroyed in 1950 by the communists uh -huh. who wanted to get rid of any Prussian connotation here. They didn't care for the castle and the royals anymore. And now the castle is being rebuilt, housing a number of things, among them like parts of the museum collections, part of the Humboldt University will be there. So it will be a new center of the city, a new center of learning, a new center of So it was the meeting. palace in the old uh, Divine Monarch days, and then it was the People's Palace, which was a sham during communism, which was a showpiece, 
and today it's going to be a genuine people center again? It's, we're still debating like what's actually going to be inside it, but it's going to be very exciting to see what it will turn out in the next couple of years. And that's on Unternelen, just across the street from the Berlin Cathedral. Yes. And Fabian, what is your favorite little little nook or cranny of just the a little Unter further, Linden? just a little further down the road from this spot? You stand on Babelplatz with your back to the memorial to the burned books. You look down onto the Linden. In the distance, you see the Brandenburg Gate, almost blocked by a statue of Frederick the Great, who's standing right there. You look a little further, and on the corner is a building of Humboldt University, a big library. In that library was Albert Einstein's office. And then you look right at Humboldt University itself, where the Brothers Grimm taught, you know, of Grimm's fairy tales fame. You look a little further to the right, you see the memorial to the victims of war, and the Zeug House right next to it is the German History Museum, and then... Straight to your right is the Berlin State Opera. So you see almost all of Berlin and German history by just standing on this one spot. All of that on one street. Fabian Ruger, Holger Zimmer, thank you so much for taking us on a walk down an amazing street, Unter den Linden, in Berlin. You're welcome. Come to Berlin. Thank you for having us. From Lindens to London, up next we explore how the River Thames reveals layers of the British capital's long history. And later, an energetic street artist tells us how she's helped brighten the lives of people young and old by putting a paintbrush and canvas in front of them for the first time. Glad you could come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. For just a few hours a day, low tide can uncover surprising reminders of everyday life in London, including relics that centuries ago became buried along its muddy banks. Lara Maklem's a licensed mudlarker who writes and posts about the fun she's had getting dirty while searching for London's past. Lara joins us now from her home base just downstream from the city in Kent. Hey, Lara. Hi, Rick. Nice to, nice to be here. Yeah, you know, I love this whole dimension of kind of traveling through England by realizing there's a lot of history buried in the mud on the Thames River. And uh, I just want to read a passage from your book, just a sentence that I found so evocative. There, lying next to the eroding barge bed, as if it had just been dropped by a passerby, was a chunky copper coin dated 1797 with the arrogant head of George III looking remarkably composed in the mud. There's a lot of history in England, and you can find it in the river. You certainly can. The River Thames has been a rubbish dump, quite simply put, uh, for 2,000 years or more. People have been throwing things into the river, either dropping them by accident or throwing them in on purpose. Now, it's such a productive place to do a little beachcombing because there's so much history and so much of the story of England and Britain happens right along the Thames. Talk about the importance of the Thames, the River Thames, for, for ancient uh, Britannia during ancient Roman times all the way up to uh, 20th century. London's only there because of, of the Thames. It was deep enough for them, the Romans to sail their, their boats up and uh, to settle and to create Londinium. It was a, a center where they could import goods and export goods as well, and it grew as a, as a trading center. Obviously, over the years, it's been invaded by the Vikings, by the Saxons, and by the Normans, and it's grown and it's become what it is today through trade and through its connection to the world. The Thames connects London out through to an empire at one point, and uh, it, it's brought the world in. It's made London a very cosmopolitan place, and it's taken London out and exported London to the world. So it, it is so. It has been so vital to the city. And of course, London was the, the capital of the ultimate empire for centuries, I think you could say. 
there's just a physical thing. The port started right in downtown London, but over time it retreated or it had to go farther and farther away for just physical reasons. I love those old etchings and paintings of London where you've got all the shipping right there in downtown London, but then bridges were built that ships couldn't get under. Uh, Then uh, the Thames barrier was built that controlled the flooding. Then ships were too big to get close. So eventually the port goes farther and farther and farther away. And what today the port of London is like, what, 25 miles downstream. Uh, talk about how, as sightseers, we can trace the the evolution of the port over time as it eventually goes farther and farther away from downtown London. Yes, uh, I mean, during Elizabethan times, obviously, everything was taking place around a place called a Custom House, which is between London Bridge and the Tower of London. And you'll see Custom House at the riverside um, on the North Shore. And that's where objects were offloaded and the taxes were paid. And then gradually they're spread out through Wapping and Rotherhithe. And you can still see a lot of the old warehouses along there and the wharfs. They've been converted now into flats. And then it moved out towards the Isle of Dogs and we've got the uh, Canary Wharf and uh, West India Keys. And that's where all the West India ships were bringing all the sugar and all the really exotic objects like ostrich feathers and, and incredible things like that, shells and rum, and wine, and all these huge warehouses filled with these these wonderful spices and things like that. And it gradually moved further and further away. And London as a port was abandoned in the 1960s, 70s, when the ships became container ships. They became too big mm. to come that far up the Thames. And the port now is located out towards the estuary. And it's still a huge working port. Laura, something kind of fundamental to beachcombing on the Thames is the fact that the Thames is tidal. I remember when I was uh, in Westminster, looking out from Westminster Bridge, and there's lion's heads on the embankment. And those really were very important back in the, in the 19th century. When you look at those lion's heads, what do you think? It's said that if you see the, if the water level gets up to the lion's head, if you see it drinking, then London is going to flood. Um, now, I have seen them drinking, but I've never seen London flood, so I don't know. Um, but that's what the old waterman used to say. But actually, that's a remnant from before we have the big movable flood barrier, right, uh, that tamed the river from the floods? It is, yes. You can actually go up to the uh, to the barrier, to the Thames barrier. It's quite an interesting trip. Uh, and if you chime it right, you'll see them lifting and closing it. They test it a lot. And it's saving London more and more from flooding uh, because obviously water levels are rising and they're going to apparently have to build a new one further out towards the estuary pretty soon because it's going to get overwhelmed fairly soon. Okay, but that will protect London from the rising sea. Uh, A lot of great cities don't have that built-in protection, but because London has this world's second largest movable flood barrier built in 1982, they can renovate that to accommodate the rising sea and London will be protected from that? Yes, um, uh, water levels have been rising by about a foot every century. If you go to a place called Strand on the Green, you'll see evidence of that. But the old um, houses that are alongside the river, they still flood, but you'll see the steps that have been built higher and higher and the the doors have got smaller and smaller until they're they're like little hobbit doors. Laura Maiklem is licensed to mudlark the River Thames for historical surprises. Her book, Mudlark, takes us with her to scan the river's shores at low tide. It's also a bestseller in Britain under the title Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames. She's also released the illustrated A Field Guide to Larking to extend your treasure searches to beaches, fields, and even your home and garden. 
Lara shares her finds on Twitter and Facebook at London Mudlark. In your book, you call the River Thames England's longest archaeological landscape, kind of implying that there's a lot to find in the mud of the Thames. As a beachcomber, you've been doing that for 15 years and told the story in your book. What do we need to know about beachcombing, mudlarking on the Thames? I mean, for me, I think uh, beachcombing on the Thames, it's, it's that thrill of not knowing what you're going to find next. Every tide uncovers something completely different. And the, the objects that I find are just the, they're just the ordinary, everyday objects that you don't really see in museums. You know, a museum wouldn't put a pin on display, for example, but it's the everyday things that you know that our ancestors were using. And it's that knowledge that when you bend down to pick these things up, you're the first person, sometimes in thousands of years, to actually touch them. And and that feeling is is magical. Oh, that's so beautiful. You know, mudlarking, that was the term for beachcombing back when people would scavenge the riverbanks like poor people scavenge dumps today in big cities. And they would just kind of gather together a, a survival, just enough of other people's junk that they could sell and not starve. Today, of course, people are beachcombing because it's, it's sort of a hobby and they find bits of history. As a beachcomber, I would worry about so many people beachcombing that they pick the mudflats clean. But because of the tide coming and going, uh, in your book, you talk about how the tide replenishes. And every time the tide rises and falls, the beachcomber can find a fresh selection of historical bits and pieces from England's distant past. I mean, some days you find absolutely nothing. Other days you'll find the most incredible amount of things. So, you know, every tide does wash something new in and it's eroding out of the mud. The mud is made of refuse in some places. I think in some places it's spoil that's been dug into the Roman and medieval layers further inland and dumped on the foreshore. And that's why we sometimes find, say, a, a Victorian bottle next to a, a medieval buckle. It's just a mismatched muddle of history oh. down there. And I don't even know what to look for, but I walk along the river banks of the Thames at low tide. I can hardly resist when the tide goes out because I love beachcombing. And I find tiles that date all the way back to the 17th century for the Great Fire of London in 1666. And I find these white chalky tubes, sometimes with a with a pipe bowl on them. And, and I realize those are the pipes that people used in the days of... Uh, King George or Charles Dickens to smoke their tobacco, and then they'd break one and throw it into the river, and we can find it today in the 21st century. It's amazing, the history, and that's what you talk about in your book. I'd also like to talk just about flat-out sightseeing along the, the River Thames. Of course, when we're in London, we've got the London Eye, and we've got Big Ben and Westminster and the Tower of London. One of my favorite things about sightseeing in London is the Jubilee Walkway. It's the, the path on the south bank of the Thames. You know the Thames intimately. What does the south bank mean to you, and what is the general feeling about the, uh, the Jubilee Walk? I love the South Bank. Uh, I mean, I've watched it evolve over the years. When when I was first started mudlarking, there was no Millennium Bridge. You know, the globe hadn't really been built and the Tate Modern was still a disused power station. So I've watched it evolve and I've watched the tourists come. And it's incredibly busy down there. You know, it never used to be busy by the river. It was almost a place mm. that Londoners didn't bother with and, and tourists never thought about visiting. And now it's become more of a focus, really, for the city. And um, just walking along that walkway, it's, it's lovely. There's so many people there. There's some great bars and restaurants and pubs down there and some, some great museums you can visit as well. Clearly in London, you've got all the decent stuff on the north, and then you've got all the rough-edged stuff on the south. 
How does that work historically in London? What characterized that wrong side of the tracks, the south side of the Thames River? I suppose the south side of the river was always more marshy. The Romans settled the north side because there were two hills. There was Ludgate Hill and Cornhill, and that's where they settled and and began their um, Londinium. So it was always higher uh, and easier to live on. And people didn't live on the south side because it was marshy. It was it was inhospitable. From sort of medieval times, it was characterized as the, the place where the prostitutes were and where people went to do the things they couldn't get away with on the north side because it was out of the jurisdiction of the city of London. As soon as you crossed the bridge, the laws that applied in the city of London didn't apply there. So you could go and do all sorts of naughty things like bear baiting and cockfighting and go to the theater and visit a lady of the night and you wouldn't get into trouble for it. Um, And this was also tax free because you didn't, when you crossed into the safety of the city, I think you'd have to pay taxes, but you could have your market to this day, the borough market on the other side, the south side of the Tower Bridge is such a characteristic place. And we've got to remember it's characteristic because it was sort of tax-free and uh, outside of the rule of law, and that's where that rough-and-tumble commerce was okay. It was, yes. I mean, the bishops really controlled the south side of the river, and uh, you know, a lot of money poured into the church from all of this. But yes, Borough Market is an ancient, ancient market, and today it's a wonderful place to go for a walk around. Oh, I love Borough I, Market. I love it. I love it. When we think about London, we think about bridges. I mean, London Bridge, we all grew up singing it. Uh, there's a handful of bridges that really matter to the tourists. I think one thing we have to stress is uh, until 1750, there was only one bridge. The rest of it was little ferries that crossed the river for the great city of London, right? That's right, yes. The wherries and the ferrymen were in charge, really. The river was a great highway because the road, simply because the roads were so terrible in London. You know, they were muddy and, and dreadful, rutted roads. And so it was quicker to get uh, up and down and across uh, by using a wherry and using a ferryman. And it could take, so, sometimes take hours to get across old London Bridge. So it was quicker to go across by a ferry. By a ferry. And London Bridge was lined with uh, little buildings and shops like our image of the Ponte Vecchio in, uh, in Florence. It was. There was even a palace on there, non such palace. The buildings were built up and up and up and they went incredibly tall and they almost reached, they almost touched each other at the top. So it created this tunnel. You can only imagine how busy it was. There was also mm. a prison on there. There was some toilets on there. Um, mm. There was everything on the bridge and it was a really quite a salubrious place to live. Everybody wanted to live on the bridge. But the funny thing is, a lot of people, when they think London Bridge, it's actually one of the ugliest, most boring bridges in London today, I'd say. And our image of London Bridge is actually Tower Bridge. I mean, on the cover of my London guidebook, routinely we put the Tower Bridge. It's such an iconic view. It's kind of embarrassing for me to think that one of my countrymen actually bought the London Bridge, thinking I think he was buying the Tower Bridge. And uh, what he got was uh, a pretty ugly, boring building. Do you know that story? Yes, we we all have a good laugh about that. I have to admit. <laughs> tell us about it. I, I just can, tell us your understanding of that story, please. Uh, well, you know, there's been different uh, the the London Bridge. There's been different London bridges. There was the old medieval one that eventually got pulled down, replaced by a Victorian one that didn't last actually that long. Uh, the one we have now was built in the 70s, and the Victorian mm. one was pulled down. And an American came along and thought they were buying Tower Bridge. In fact, they were buying the old Victorian London Bridge, which wasn't that exciting either. And it was all taken away to Arizona, wasn't it? And it's on a a lake. And they don't have the beautiful Tower Bridge, which you can go up in now. It's actually uh, uh, renovated all the mechanics of it, how it would raise up for the ships and so on. And that's the bridge right at the Tower of London. And that really is the iconic bridge 
in London. And then Westminster Bridge is one we all know, and most of us love it, because you walk out on that for a view of Westminster Palace and Big Ben, and, and you go there on your way to get to the, the big Ferris wheel on the Thames, the London Eye. Yes, Westminster Bridge is, is iconic. And of course, Millennium Bridge as well uh, mm. is the newest bridge. That's a wonderful bridge. And that's the um, pedestrian bridge. That's the beautiful pedestrian bridge. And if you want to walk from St. Paul's uh, down to the, the, the Tate Modern Gallery, it's just a beautiful experience. That's right. And fantastic view. You get an amazing mm-hmm. view of um, St. Paul's from the end of there as well. Sadly, the bridges of London have been in the news in the last few years because of terrorist attacks. I believe two bridges have had a car that's driven onto it or a, a a van and actually killed people in a murderous kind of uh, uh, action. But London, as it does so well, has not overreacted to the terrorism, but just got the bad guys and, and fixed the problem. And today, those bridges have been remodeled for pedestrian safety. You've probably crossed these bridges. What will the tourist or the or, or anybody in London find these days to comfort them when they think of walking safely across the bridges? Uh, yes, there are big concrete bollards at both ends, so it really is quite um, quite safe now. The bollards will, will stop anyone from driving up onto the the pavements there. So, uh, so yeah, terrible, terrible attacks they were, but um, you know, they, but safe now. And and as a matter now. of principle, the people of Britain will not be terrorized by the terrorists, and they continue owning their bridges. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Lara Maiklem. Her book is Mudlark in Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. Laura, I could talk to you all day about the Thames, and we're just about out of time, but we've been talking about London, and people are kind of fixated on London, but the River Thames is 200 miles long. What outside of London, just in a a couple of quick words, would be highlights for a traveler visiting England? What would you want to see for sure to get a better appreciation of the sights along the Thames? If you're using the Thames, I should actually say get on a boat on the Thames because mm. you really there is um, you get a totally different perspective of the city and go at night as well because you'll see you go under all the bridges and they're lit up and it's amazing. Get a boat out to Greenwich. That's where I lived when I lived in London. I lived there for years and years and it's my favourite part of London. And mm-hmm. there are as uh, a beautiful park. It's where time begins. The Zero Meridian. Yeah, we know the That's Zero right. Meridian. That's there. Yeah. And also it's the maritime capital of the empire upon which the sun never set. Absolutely. Yes, there's a great maritime museum. There's the Cutty Sark you can go on. And there's some great places to eat and uh, shopping mm-hmm. and things like that that you can do there. It's fantastic. Um, up the other end, you're going towards Kew Gardens. You can't beat Kew Gardens. It's absolutely beautiful. If you want to go beyond the tidal Thames, Hampton Court is on the Thames. It's incredible, <laughs> Hampton Court. Hampton Court, um, I love it. And a cool thing about Hampton Court and Kew Gardens is you can reach them by boat. And what a delightful way to approach two of the great sites in England. It does take a little while from, from central London, but if you've got the time, yes, go by boat. And if you go to Hampton Court, go to the kitchens. They're the best bit. All right. Laura Maiklem, thanks so much for joining us. And congratulations on your book, Mudlark, In Search of London's Past Along the River Thames. And uh, next time I go to Britain, I'll have a little better appreciation of the historic wonders that line and are buried in the mud of the River Thames. Thanks, Rick. I'm looking forward to seeing you in London. I hope that's sooner rather than later. Take care. Bye. There's more with the London Mudlark, Laura Maiklem, at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, an artist simply known as Nicolina, who just happens to be my niece, lights a spark for taking part in public art projects all over the world. She tells us how she's brought the fun of painting to neighborhoods that needed a little brightening up. That's in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. 
It's really inspiring to see someone set out into the world with gusto to discover their passions and spread a little joy and color and fun in communities that could use a little boost. My niece Nicolina is one such person. She started a nonprofit artists' collective called the Free Art Society in New York City's East Village a few years back. Its purpose was to get street art projects off the ground in public spaces and to show how making art together and giving children the opportunity to express themselves through their own art is a wonderful part of creating a community. She's traveled around the U.S. and from Chiapas to China to Corcovado to inspire children and adults with her Hearts of the World workshops. That's where she gives each participant the outline of a heart, aorta and all, and encourages them to decorate it with images that reflect their dreams and thoughts and what they love most. Nikki, I loved seeing this phrase on your website, Vamos Pintar. Vamos Pintar. That's what we shouted to the children in the favelas in Rio de Janeiro when we did the Hearts of the World workshop there. We just walked around throughout the favelas and gathered the kids, and we were like the painted Pied Pipers. Now, now so just so people understand the context of this, you're uh, into decorating the streets and buildings wherever you go. You went down to Rio, and, yeah. you, and you were staying in the favela, which is a, a slum, basically. Yeah. Tell us about what it's like to live in a favela. Depending on the favela, it can be wonderful. They kind of get a, a bad rap because of their history, but now they're... Most of them are very safe, and, you know, the, mo- the most alarming thing about them is you'll see police officers permeating the favela, and they have giant guns. So yeah. there's a heavy police presence, a lot of poor people, very dense population. Yeah. And do tourists generally go there, or do they, if they go to Rio, they'll sort of stay in the... Um, some tourists do. There are things called favela tours, and... Just to take a look at this. Uh-huh, tourists will come down. I think that the best way to go to the favela is just to walk around yourself, probably. You don't really need a tour, I would say. You're an artist, and you have your project, Hearts of the World, and this was this whole, uh, let's go paint, vamos pintar. First, what is Hearts of the World? Hearts of the World is an ongoing workshop that I'm doing with kids from around the world. Basically, I'm giving them an outline of a stylized anatomical heart, kind of like the ones that I often paint, and ask them to fill it in with whatever's in their heart, with their dreams and their passions and their fears and hopes for the future. They can paint it in with anything they want. And it's it's been really amazing. I've gone to many different countries with the project, and I always am surprised by the results. So you're in, in a poor neighborhood, a slum of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and you don't have a huge budget. You're there with this vision, this passion. You need a bunch of kids to fill in these anatomical hearts. You go into a neighborhood, and you just say, let's paint. Yep. And then what happened? It was really amazing. We sat on the on the dirt ground and sat around in a circle, and we gave the kids all of the panels, and they went crazy. They loved painting. It was the first time any of them had ever done it. First they, they painted their panel, and then they would paint the back because they didn't want to stop, and then when the paper was completely covered, they painted themselves, and then they painted each other, and then they ran around in the street chasing each other with paint. Now, had these kids painted before? No. This is the first time they had painted. Yeah. You know, they're so hungry for things like this, for painting or some kind of way to express themselves. So you did this Hearts of the World project in Rio. Where else have you done it? In Beijing, China, and Guangzhou in the south of China, and Japan, and Mexico, Chile, and some parts in the U.S. So you're kind of like the Pied Piper of 
kids embracing life and filling their dreams on this little panel that they'll paint the anatomical heart, fill it with their, their hopes and dreams and passions. Yeah, I mean, I really want to inspire kids and people in general to follow their, their dreams and express themselves and learn about other people and have compassion for people of diverse cultures. And what have you learned when you look at the final works by all these kids who have filled in these outlines of an anatomical heart? Are they different or is there more similarities? Are there cultural differences, class differences? We're all fundamentally the same. You've actually found that by the way kids fill in the hearts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all individual and I think that's really beautiful and that we should express our individuality, but we all have the same emotions and the same kinds of dreams and, and hopes. So. Why an anatomical heart? And I mean, we know the Valentine's heart, you know. This looks like a right out of a medical book almost, that kind of a heart. Yeah, I mean, it's got a little twist to it, but, you know, the Valentine's heart has been used so much and it seems like it's lost its meaning. What's an example of a particular child who filled in one of these hearts in a particularly faraway corner of this planet? Oh, one of my favorite moments was in Beijing, China. I did the workshop at an orphanage for blind children. And there was this nine-year-old kid who was born blind. You know, I, did, I didn't know what to expect at all with this workshop. And I ended up outlining the hearts with yarn so that they could feel the outlines. I didn't know if they could understand what color was or what form would look like through painting. He first asked for blue. And he painted his whole heart blue. And I asked him what he was painting, and he said, I'm painting the sky. And then he asked for yellow, and he painted the sun. And he asked for green, and he painted the forest. And I asked him what color he wanted next. And he asked for black. And he painted over everything with the black. And I asked him, what are you painting? And he looked up at me with these cloudy eyes and a big smile on his face. And he said, I paint the darkness. And I said, why? And he said, the darkness is very beautiful. There are many colored lights in the darkness. I think that there's so much that we can learn from these kids. Kids have a special kind of wisdom that tends to be lost as we grow older. Wow. How old are you? 30. 30. You must think, why doesn't everybody do this? I mean, you could be just doing something very predictable in a very predictable corner of the United States, and instead you're going to small towns in China, you're going to the slums of Rio, you're going all over the world, you're going to Haiti coming up with this project. How do you do it? I have a little business in New York called Paint the Town. It's something that I do together with my friends. We we paint windows and we paint signs and murals. Every year after Halloween, I work really, really hard um, painting kind of like a robot every day, especially after Thanksgiving, because there's a lot of work then. And I paint until I can't paint anymore, and then I And you get a one-way ticket somewhere. Yeah. God, but don't you... In a way, you're inspiring people just to get up and make more out of their life. Life is such an amazing gift, and we all have this incredible opportunity to to use it to its fullest capacity, and that's what I like to inspire in people. Through your art. The street artist known as Nicolina is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She posts samples online of some of the street art she's painted in New York, L.A., Seattle, and Stamford, Connecticut. There's also photos from the Hearts of the World painting workshops she's held in more than a dozen cities, including her current home base of New Orleans. It's at NicolinaArt.com. 
We recorded our conversation with Nikki a few years ago when she was part of the urban artist scene in New York City, creating vibrant street murals and public art events she calls interactive performance spectacles. You'll find links to Nicolina's work at ricksteves.com slash radio. Nikki, in your blog, you wrote that Rio is the most beautiful city. The jungle comes right up to the town. Describe Rio. Why did it steal your heart? Mm, Rio is amazing. The nature is everywhere, and the people are so joyous, I think, because they grow up with nature around them all the time. So trees, sunsets? There are massive mountains all around you. The sea is incredible, and it seems like a richer blue than anywhere I've ever seen it. The sunrises are the most beautiful I've seen in Rio. They're kind of pearlescent, and I can't even describe them. You have to see them. Now, you've got this other project that you dreamed up in Rio, Flutu Arte. Flutu Arte. This project I did with my friend Maxine Nino. Uh, I wanted to paint a boat, and so I painted one, and, and some friends joined me. And then the next fisherman asked if we could paint his boat, too. And I could see that it was spreading like a happy virus, as art tends to do, because it makes people happy usually. These are funky fishermen's boats that are filling a harbor. Yeah, there are about 60 in the harbor. 60 boats. And you're painting the, they sort of got a plywood rooftop that... It's fiberglass. It's a fiberglass yeah, rooftop. it's kind of tricky to paint on. <laughs> that, that protects them from the sun and yeah. everything. And you're, you've got a beautiful surface then to paint on the top of each of these 60 boats. Yeah, we painted murals on the tops of... 58, we, we tried for 60, but there were a couple people who held out. <laughs> yeah. These fishermen, their boats were pretty special to them, I would imagine. Yeah, we, we got to know the fishermen really well, and one of them told us that a fisherman's boat is like his wife. So it was very important for us to have the artist. We, we worked with 45 different artists from around the world and all around so Rio. So you're like tattooing his wife. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to, did, did he care Better what you put Better not mess up. <laughs> did, he, did he care what, what images you put on his boat's rooftop? Yeah, absolutely. You know, some fishermen who were, who cared less, but many of them were particular about what they wanted and had us paint a shark or a mermaid or their favorite soccer team, the Botafogo. We had a few Botafogo shields. So if you want to, if you've got some artistic wild image and you talk to the fisherman, he goes, I want my football team's shield. Yeah, you know, some of the artists were a little disappointed with that, but, <laughs> but we told them to go as crazy with it as they could. Nikki, you talked about a, a fisherman's boat is like his wife. You also had a boat that you painted that was dedicated to Marina. Tell us about that. Marina was this older woman who spent her whole life in the harbor. And for me, Fluto Arce is kind of about her. The point of the whole project was to see to what extent art can influence the community that owns it. And in the very beginning of the project, she was really skeptical of us, and she would she'd paddle around in her little rowboat and kind of glare at us, like, what are these So intruders? she's looking at these Yankees, and they're painting up the boats. Yeah, and they're like, what are you doing to my harbor? I never gave you permission to do this. This is her and, terrain. Yeah, and one of the fishermen actually dedicated his painting to her and had the artist paint a black pearl in homage to Marina. And I why, never... Why a black pearl? She was dark, and that was their nickname for her. The black pearl. The black pearl. So beautiful. So then what did Marina's attitude, uh, how did that impact it? So by the end of the project, first of all, she ended up loving us, which was so great to be accepted by her of all the others. She beamed when we asked her if she liked the boat, the Black Pearl, and then she asked us if we could paint a seahorse on her own boat. 
you won over Marina. Yeah, it was a great achievement. Now, how did you get your um, workforce to do this big project, painting 58 boats? Well, we were staying at a local hostel, and people would come through from all over the world. And so many times people came, and we kind of ended up taking over the hostel in a way because people would come through and meet us and, and see the project we were doing, and they would change their travel plans to stay with us and help us paint boats. In order to help you paint boats yeah. on the, on the Flutu Arte. Because we had a lot of fun while we were doing it all, so we would always take the boats out and have barbecues on the sea, and we'd take them out to this abandoned jail at the mouth of the Guanabara Bay, and it was really a magical time. So travelers coming through Rio could stumble onto your project and help out. What What's the fun? I mean, you work all day painting in the sun. After dark, what goes on? Uh, how do you mix it up with the locals? Well, sometimes we'd have a barbecue on one of the boats. Sometimes we would go out dancing. Sometimes we would go exploring abandoned buildings in Rio. And this one particular night, we went to stay the night at this abandoned hotel on the mountain of Corcovado, which holds Christ the Redeemer. And we built a big fire there and sang songs and told stories. And then when the sun came up, I went up to Christ the Redeemer alone and walked all the way up the railroad tracks before it was open and walked through the turnstile without paying any fee and no one was there, not a tourist in sight. And I saw the sunrise in Corcovado and the Christ the Redeemer statue. And that was another magical moment. People spend a fortune to have half the magic of that. Yeah. And you don't need money to, to get the magic, that's for sure. How long were you in Brazil? I was there for five months. Did you pick up much of the language? I did pick up some. I learned most of everything that I know from the fishermen. From the fishermen? What, yeah. What's a key word we should all know when we go to Brazil? Shojibola. Shojibola. It's slang for awesome, yeah. And you can get a long way with that word. Awesome, yeah. Sojibola. Is that right? Sojibola, yeah. It's a, it's a football soccer term. If people want to see the boats, where do they go? Uh, they go down to the historical neighborhood of Urca. And that is nestled right between Corcovado and Pau de Azucar, the Sugarloaf Mountain. It's very close to the Sugarloaf Mountain. Because you can see the, the Christ statue from there. Yeah. And if people don't have an uh, airplane ticket all the way to Brazil, where can they see it on, online? Uh, they can see it at flutuarte.com, F-L-U-T-U-A-R-T-E.com. You can see all the boats. You can see all the boats from... 58 boats. Yeah, the, the website is set up as sort of an aerial view of the harbor. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with my niece, Nicolina, and uh, I've done a lot of mainstream travel, and Nikki goes all over the world with her paintbrush. To learn more about Nicolina's art, you can go to her website, nicolinaart.com. Nikki, your organization that, you, that you're a part of in New York, Free Art Society, what is that? Uh, we're a group of artists and musicians and writers and adventurers and we're all about volunteering our time to make art for the public and erasing the lines between the spectator and the performer as much as possible. To have people engaged in it. Yeah. Now, you're engaging in it. How do you get permission to paint on these public spaces, or do you just do it after dark? Uh, we do it both ways. Um, it's good to get permission, but if it's a, a kind of public space, then we just go for it at night. So if you want to do a big thing at night, you have to be pretty quick. Yeah. Tell me about that. Call that flash art. Flash art. <laughs> Tell me more. Yeah. Um, well, we've done some projects with a lot of people, I think the most being about 60. And we've made a 400-foot mural on the sidewalk in the East Village. 
in five minutes. In five minutes. So you have this all coordinated, and it's like a military operation. It was an art army, yeah. An art army. Now, if you're painting rooftops in uh, in Rio of boats, or you painted a funicular train car in Chile, mm-hmm. where do you get the paint, and, and what kind of paint do you use, and what concerns do you have there? If I can, I bring the paint with me. For Hearts of the World, I always bring the paint with me because it doesn't take up a bunch of space because you never know if you're going to be able to find it in a foreign place. But for big projects, I'll usually buy house paint. And when it comes to sleeping and just providing for yourself, uh, you staying in with people, you're crashing and like couch surfing, Airbnb, hostels, what do you generally do? I absolutely love couch surfing. I, I would pick that over any other way to stay somewhere. Anyone who's going to offer you their couch for free is probably an awesome person. And you can do this all over the world. You can do it all over the world. You just go to the website. Mm-hmm, couchsurfing.org. And you're a fan of that. Big fan. So you could go to, you're going to Haiti. Yeah. Shortly. Do you buy a one-way ticket or a round-trip ticket? Uh, I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants, but I'll buy a ticket to Haiti and then to Rio. I might also go to Trinidad, and if I do that, then I will probably go right before Haiti. And what is your daily budget when you go on an adventure like this? Uh, I should think more about that, but I just try not to spend money. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you just try not to spend money. Yeah. You meet people, you sleep on couches, you'll paint for your dinner. Yeah, and then when I run out of money, I'm going back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can hardly wait to hear about more of your adventures, and congratulations on brightening up the world. Thank you. Brightening up the world brightens up my own heart, so I'm so happy to do it. It's the spirit of an artist with a travel bug. Yeah. With a sure. wanderlust. Enjoy your next trip. Thank you so much. Sojibola. Sojibola. Thanks, Nikki. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmara Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out what Rick's been thinking about lately on his Facebook and Twitter pages or read his blog at ricksteves.com. Enjoy Europe on a Rick Steves bus tour. Our bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and dozens of exciting itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.